millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello. And welcome to The Chat Returns, a mini-series of conversations about our relationships with the world's greatest animation studio, Studio Ghibli. I'm Michael Leader. And I'm Steph Watts, and we've seen a lot of them. And I'm Jake Cunningham, and I'm joining the panel. So join us on our quest into the glorious world of Ghibli. <laughs> <laughs> Steph, Jake... Always a pleasure to speak with you. Jake, welcome for joining us on this panel discussion today. <laughs> oh, well, I'm, I'm glad that I got a little laugh out of you. Yeah, it's a, it's a very exciting chat uh, for me this week because it means I get to listen in on a conversation. I don't have to do any hard work. You guys have done that already. Uh, I get to listen in to a fascinating conversation between you guys and Erica Henderson. So for the listeners out there who don't already know her, who is Erica Henderson? Oh, I mean, that's quite a deep question. I don't think in this interview we really get so existentially uh, <laughs> detailed. But Erica Henderson is absolutely one of the best comic book artists working right now, has worked on some of the best series in the last 10 years that I've read, at least. The unbeatable Squirrel Girl over at Marvel was such a highlight of Marvel at the time when they brought in a few independent writers and artists to sort of zhuzh up some of the, let's say, B or C grade characters, but turned them into absolute must-read comics week in and week out. Erica's work with writer Ryan North on that series was so hilarious, so funny. And she also worked with Chip Zdarsky on Jughead when uh, the Archie Comics line had a whole refresh and that was a very burger filled comic comedy comic over there and most recently erica worked on a great short graphic novel called dracula mother beep uh sorry kids ask your parents what word i just beeped out that she did beautiful artwork for with the writer alex de campi which is sort of like a 1970s exploitation cinema spin on dracula really fantastic after seeing erica mainly working comedy strips and superhero stuff this was very different got to indulge a lot more horror stuff so it's really fun but also really fun to talk with her in general. This Chat Returns miniseries has been fantastic talking to writers, animators, filmmakers. I don't think we've spoken with a comic book artist before, have we, Steph? No, I don't think we have. And this was so interesting because I think outwardly you might not think that there's much of a Ghibli connection with Erica Henderson's work. But I think in talking to her, we got so much about kind of what she takes from the art style and the kind of, I guess, the philosophy of 
that Ghibli art and then a lot of stuff about kind of how she grew up with the kind of Cantonese VHS dubs of Ghibli films and and how the kind of the culture in those films, especially around food, really kind of related to her. Um, So it was really, really interesting chat and yeah, really kind of surprising and yeah, a little bit different from the other ones that we've done, I feel like. Yes, it has been such a treat doing this Chat Returns series, talking to so many wonderful different people, and hopefully we can carry on later down the line in the podcast and get even more Ghibli fans on the show to talk about it. And if you want to hear more from us talking about things that are related to Ghibli and occasionally things that aren't related to Ghibli, head on over to Apple Podcasts, where we've got our bonus series, The Library Cafe, where we might talk about the Olympics, we might talk about vinyl records, we might talk about comics, who knows? Uh, That's our little breakout space. Uh, And that's one of many exciting things that's going on in the Ghibliotech world, because, Michael, we're actually going to go into reality? Yes, you're not going to just be a face on a screen for me, Jake, much longer. Of course, we do have the Ghibliotech book coming out in September, 2nd of September in the UK, 14th September in the US and to market we thought hey let's go out in the world let's go and see people spread the joy spread the love spread the word of Studio Ghibli and so keep an eye open on our social feeds at Ghibliotech on Twitter for information about potential book launch events in the UK. Yeah that is super exciting can't wait to kind of get back out into the real world but for now let's listen to Erica Henderson. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Erica Henderson, thank you so much for joining us in the dusty bookshelves and bookcases of the Ghibliotech. We love speaking to people about the wide-ranging, enduring influence of Studio Ghibli, films that we may have watched as kids, appreciated as adults. We've spoken to people from all sorts of backgrounds, but I think, I believe, Steph, you can correct me here, this is the first time we've spoken to somebody who primarily you'd call a comic book artist, right? Yeah, I think that's right, yeah. We've spoken to filmmakers, animators, writers, no pressure, Erica. 
as the first of your kind <laughs> on the podcast. But well, good. I'm glad I can pave a new road here. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, we, we we love the comic work you do. But I suppose let's take uh, take you all the way back. What was your first experience of the work of Studio Ghibli? It's hard to say because I. As a kid, I know I had a few VHSs. I had a Cantonese dub of Totoro. And inexplicably, I just had this Japanese no subtitles copy of Laputa. I mean, I assume the Cantonese dub came from family who got it for me, who speak Chinese. But I have no idea where this like tape to VHS of Laputa came from. <laughs> <laughs> But I, I still watched it anyway because it was like it, the storytelling is so clear. Watching it again later as like a teen or adult with subtitles or with a dub, it didn't change anything. Like it, you knew exactly what was going on. Just knowing the minutia of what, you know, that crystal is in the end, like doesn't change all that much. That's so interesting. So were you watching both of these like interchangeably? As a kid, how old were you at this uh, this point? Pretty young. Uh, although I think my dad said that when I was really small and we went to China, we saw one of them in a mm -hmm. theater. But I, I don't, that's, you know, that was in the age of like things that you're not going to remember, that you, your brain can't <laughs> hold on to those kinds of memories from that age. So I'm, I'm told that that was something. But I just watched them all the time with whatever else I had around, you know, with the, with my clamshell Disney movies and <laughs> whatever else was around. And did they sort of take the same boxes for you as Disney movies when you were a kid? I know when you were a kid, you don't really differentiate between what you're, you're watching. It's all great stuff. But did you know there was something different about these films? I think I did. I mean, I, there were other animated movies that I had that I don't know the origin of because, again, they were like these Cantonese dubs of anime. <laughs> I could tell that they were different, like these things that were produced from different places because they had different sensibilities. And the Miyazaki stuff felt more magical. Like the Disney stuff, I you could tell was like trying to speak to you as a kid and the Miyazaki stuff like didn't care. It was just <laughs> doing its own thing. It wasn't like, this is who it's for. This is what we're, the audience we're going after. It was just telling a story. I'm trying to imagine like watching Laputa without the the subs as a kind of small child and just how kind of magical that must have been because just thinking about it as well like it is so visual you have that whole sequence where they like get to the castle and there's like barely any speech anyway so maybe like a silent version is best <laughs> you know you, I don't need to know anything to think about like oh this guy sees a girl who's floating and he catches her and he brings her home and then they run off and people are chasing them like these are all ideas you can get across without words do you think that kicked off like anything to do with you wanting to be an artist or was that something that came a bit later i always wanted to do something with art i didn't know exactly what it was and actually i did go to school for film and animation and i wound up not doing that because i i like having that kind of full control that you don't get unless you're like Unless you're like Miyazaki himself, right? Like controlling every little aspect of it. And I didn't feel like working my way up to that. <laughs> and so I could, you know, with comics, I can still do visual storytelling and have my hands in every little piece of it at all times. Yeah, because I feel like, I mean, we've watched the um, 
I don't know if you've seen the documentary about Studio Ghibli, where you have kind of Miyazaki walking around and talking about every little kind of thing in each of the drawings, what should be right, what's wrong and everything like that. Is that that's not a goal for how you want to work? Maybe, but, it, you know, it still takes I mean, he's been doing. I don't know how he got to where he was as young as he did. That seems highly unusual. I feel like for most people, you have to be like 50 something before people trust you enough to let you have that level of control. Absolutely. I love the way you describe watching these films as being a visual, you know, just purely visually. And it is something, Steph, that week in, week out, we do land on these visual moments. As you say, him catching the girl as she's floating down to earth, or the moment where the giant robot at the end of Castle in the Sky is reaching out with a flower in its hand to the to the boy and girl, or simply egg on toast, or whatever the food moment is in Castle in the Sky. These are moments, visual moments that don't rely on language. They just cut, some, cut you know, very deep into us somehow. I just remembered, I also had Kiki, but I watched that one less for some reason. The other two I watched a lot more. I, I don't know why. So these were just all, all there at home and you were also watching those Disney classics, you know, I guess as many people you know, of a certain generation were watching. Did you go deeper the older you got and you sort of knew, did you find out what Ghibli was, who Miyazaki was, as his films became more known and more available in the West? Yeah, I think the first couple of non-Miyazaki Ghibli movies I got into were Whisper of the Heart and The Cat Returns. Yes. That, that weird sequel <laughs> that is just the story that the girl writes in the first one, which I say, okay, there's a story within the story, and we're not going to explain that at all. It's just going to be this strange cat town. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I started getting into more of the other stuff. I haven't explored it as deeply as I could have. I did recently make my fiance watch Hanuki Pompoko. <laughs> Right, because that was available on uh, on one of the streaming services. <laughs> yeah, how how did that go down? Because that's one that you know has a reputation. Maybe before people watch it, they they hear it's the, the you know the the scrotum movie. <laughs> I think that part didn't get him as much as wow, this is a really depressing environmental message. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think the knowledge of how many scrotums there are in the movie has been floating around for so long. If he wasn't as surprised by that part of it. <laughs> I know, but then, and then you actually sit down and watch it and it's two hours long and it's quite depressing and so thoughtful and serious. <laughs> There's so much to that movie. I, I think people come into it knowing that they're scrotums, but then, you know, the people who made it, that's just part of this weird cultural figure. Mm-hmm. And so they don't think about the fact that it's weird to have a big scrotum that flies around (laughs) and they're just more concerned about this you know environmental magical forest aspect yeah it'll never get old for me so we put on a screening of of Pompoko at the British Museum with like actual like historians art historians and academics doing a panel discussion afterwards and it was wild to me you know knowing sort of growing up as someone who talks about these films online and like you know discussion boards and everything about how that was such a strange film uh, to talk about back in the day but now it is you know in certain areas you know really respected as the masterwork it is the serious piece of filmmaking it is yeah it's it's just one of those things that you know means something else in japan or not even that means something else in japan like, they tell us what it means it's just that we have such puritanical views on <laughs> genitals <laughs> that we see 
a piece of a genital, which our brains go insane. <laughs> <laughs> Steph and I have both read Squirrel Girl, and I've, I've, read, I've read Jughead, so I've like, read quite a lot of your sort of work as an artist. But I, I wondered, like, what sort of films and stories and cartoons, anime, etc., were you drawing from as you were growing up? Because it was not you don't necessarily draw a direct link between watching something like House in the Sky or Totoro and then the the work you're doing in comics now. I mean, for me, it feels like there is because my interest is maybe not so much the exact details of how those art styles are presented. The things that people often look at when they say like, oh, this is inspired by that, which is like the visual details of like how this thing is drawn and the way that's presented. For me, it's how he uses visual storytelling and how scenes transition and the choices that are made not so much, yeah, like I said, not so much in the drawing, but in, you know, what what do we choose to focus on now? What's important to look at? How long do we linger on something when, you know, there isn't any action? You know, he loves those slow moments of just grass or obviously food, you know, things that they don't move the story forward, but are part of the story because, you know, the, the way that we experience the story is part of the story or it informs the story. That's sort of where it's more interesting for me because, yeah, like a a lot of these details are kind of either this interest in European design or deep focus on Japanese folklore. And neither one of those are like things that I'm an expert in or think about a ton. And so I'm not going to be thinking about those things or like, you know, the exact way that he draws a face, but the way that the stories move, it's, it's so good. Did you ever read the, any of um, Miyazaki's manga work? Did you read Nashka, the big doorstop manga? Well, I, I actually have that one from when I was a kid. I have the smaller Viz uh, books before they reprinted them at like double that size. Yeah. When they were making them like a whatever, like that little digest size that most manga comes in. And what did you make of that? Of course, he he made it over the course of a decade, so his sort of artistic sensibility changes. But it's if you're coming from something like Totoro and you go straight into that, it's very dense and different to his films. I think it is, but I I loved it. Like it was, it's just it's more of his his storytelling, but you get to linger with it. You know, you get to sit with a longer story. And I guess it wasn't that much of a shock because I had Laputa, which is closer to the kind of sensibility that. Nauska has. I think my cousin had a copy of Nauska because like my cousin and I live close to each other and so we just kind of we had like a pool of VHS tapes that we would kind of share and yeah I think that was the randomly only in Japanese movie that she had and that one I will say is more difficult to understand from purely visual sense because there's just a lot going on that you know you need someone to tell you what the context is before you can really get into it even when i first watched that one i had to watch it again just to get a little bit more of what was going on and even now like i'm working through the manga and i think i'm only about 70 pages in and had to take a little rest because it is so dense and there's just so much more in there that obviously couldn't be put in the film unless it was going to be about a five-hour runtime film. but It's like, a, that's a series, not even a mini-series. It's an entire... <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I think one of the hard parts for me with Nausicaa is knowing the bigger story. And so having this, this section of it, it feels incomplete, even though it, it is a complete piece of story. I mean, it's still excellent, but yeah, I feel like I've watched that one less than most of the others. I think the one I've seen the least is 
wind rises because it's it's just so depressing. <laughs> like that one's it's like graveyard of the fireflies and then wind rises for me. <laughs> this this may be a bit of an odd question, but um yeah, Totoro with the Cantonese dub and then Cast in the Sky with no dub whatsoever. At what point did you realise this was these were Japanese films? And I ask this because I had a friend growing up in Manchester from a Chinese family who had also VHSs that their family had brought over from Hong Kong. So they didn't know they were Japanese films. They just thought they were these films that their family watched. At what point did you get a sense of what Japanese cinema was and anime was and that these videos you were watching as a kid were part of that? It's hard to say. I know that I was getting into anime maybe late elementary school early middle school that was when it started getting brought over more but i also i had to go to chinese school as a kid and that was in china i grew up in new york that was in chinatown manhattan so we'd go to manhattan like every saturday morning and near the school there was this little shopping center and in the basement there was just this tiny little store that just had fan subs right and i started going down there and buying fan subs and i think that was started in middle school when i had a few extra dollars so i don't know when the shift exactly took over but yeah i know i remember there was a point where i found out that a few of the movies i had weren't chinese yeah even though they were in chinese and Totoro's a weird one for me still because a lot of the translations were are different. Like they just change what some few characters say. And I watched it so many times that those parts are ingrained in my brain. So if I watch like the actual Totoro, it feels wrong to me. <laughs> 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 like, it's still amazing. It's still wonderful and magical. But there are sections where I'm just like, nope, nope, this is incorrect. <laughs> Can you pinpoint any of those exact moments so we can uh, watch out for it next time? First weird thing is that the the names of the girls in in the movie are um, Daigun Toti, Daigun Titi. So Daigun is their like family name, uh, and that means large roll. And their names are both slang for toilet paper. <laughs> yeah, I guess one's more slang, the other one's just straight up toilet paper. I ah. do not know why this was the choice. <laughs> The scene when she first meets Totoro and she's laying on his belly and he yawns. He like yawns and yells and then she yells back. In the Cantonese dub, she yells, someone hasn't brushed his teeth. And like, yeah, when the little Totoros and they first see them, yeah. they make noises. Like they're, they're like constantly making sounds. It feels a bit like when shows like Dragon Ball Z first came over and were dubbed and like every single moment had to have audio in it. Like... There was just this fear that if you didn't have audio constantly, like kids would just fall asleep. You can't have <laughs> quiet, solemn moments. That's wild. Yeah, like the little Totoros go, uh, bum, bum, ba, di, di, da. And they like just in a row like that. One made one noise, the other one made the other noise. And like it, it matched the speed of their movement. So when they're running away, that would speed up. <laughs> so yeah, just weird stuff like that. And it, I feel like most of it was accurate. Just every so often, these quiet moments, they had to like throw in a joke or a noise. <laughs> That's so fascinating. And so much of what we talk about is, you know, it's particularly with some of those films, like Kiki's Delivery Service is one where it was one of the first of their films to be localized into the US. And they had Phil Hartman doing the cat's voice, Gigi. And, you know, quite controversially, he does some ad libs and adds some extra little lines where there weren't that in the original. And it's quite controversial for fans who 
you know, maybe grew up with those imperfect translations, but they do love it for its own reasons. And then the purists who only want it to be as uh, as specific as possible. Yeah, like I, there are parts of me that still think about the original Akira dub before Pioneer fixed it up and made it more accurate. Was that one of the films you got from the uh, the basement fancer place? Or what else were you getting from there or, or back then? Um, it was, what was weird about what I was buying in the basement was basically as soon as I finished buying a series, or at least like if when I started getting it and had a bunch, it would suddenly come to Fox or Cartoon Network. So like I, I bought Cowboy Bebop and then it showed up and I got like Cardcaptor Sakura and then it showed up. I was like, what is happening? <laughs> <laughs> like these days I don't have time to really watch anything unless I can also draw during it, which makes anything that's subtitled difficult if something's subtitled and i watch it it has to be really special because i have to be able to look up and there is something yeah genuinely really nice about putting on a subtitle show because then you have to properly watch all of it and pay attention to it i guess there's different shows for for that and for the the casual dub as well yeah there are some shows where i just i just want to experience it and i don't need to have the most pure like i'm not so invested i need like the perfect most pure version of it i can just you know like when i watched assassination classroom on netflix i did not need to see that like it's it's perfect i just want to know what happens <laughs> i think I'm, I'm like you erica i don't really have time nowadays to watch the sort of long-running series that's something i leave to steph and then steph can recommend stuff <laughs> to to us it's a it's quite a time investment to get through because like you know as an industry they still p- pump out so much stuff every season now. In a way, it was so much easier in the good old days where it was only whatever Toonami or Cartoon Network or whatever were giving us. <laughs> <laughs> now all this stuff is available like on HBO Max, I guess, for you, for you in the States and Netflix for everyone around the world. So have you watched... So you say you've, there are still some you haven't watched? Not to sort of expose your sort of weak spots, but like which ones haven't you watched? And is there a reason why you save them for any day? Watched all the Miyazaki ones, mm-hmm. but I haven't watched all the Ghibli ones. Like, I haven't watched Earthsea. It's harder to name the things I haven't seen. <laughs> right. No, absolutely, um, of course. <laughs> I mean, sometimes it's just, I just don't get around to things, you know? Mm-hmm. Or, like, there are some movies that have been in my to-watch list for, like, maybe a decade now. <laughs> like, I'm, like, I'll get to it one day, and then I get distracted, and I do something else, and that would be still in my list. <laughs> Absolutely, you're you're, fortunate, you're lucky that um, our co-host Jake isn't on this call because he'd be trotting out his uh, his hot take is that Tales from Earthsea is not as bad as everyone says. Uh, he's a he's a big defender of that movie, even though uh, <laughs> everyone would say he's wrong. Well, I, I'm also, and this this gets difficult because it opens up a lot more movies. But I'm I'm an advocate of sometimes things are bad, but there's something that's really worth seeing in it, and so you should watch it anyway. And I'll give that advice to different people depending on what I think their interests are but yeah there there are a lot of things that I think are objectively not good but are so interesting in a niche way that I'll still watch it more than once because there's just it's something so interesting about it even if it didn't come together and I think a lot of that for me is things that are are very ambitious and just fall flat because I would rather see someone put everything they have into something and then you know it just doesn't work out like these things happen rather than like okay we've focused tested this we know exactly the story points i i've read by joseph campbell i i know how a story should be structured 
and I've done all the homework and I have made the most mathematically unobjectionable story. I've done it. Like, that's not interesting to me. I'd rather see something that's a d disaster, but you, you tried. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely get that sense from some of our friends and colleagues who are like massive horror fans. They'll just watch horror films and, you know, just because it's just because it's in that genre, if it's bad or good, there'll be something in there that they'll take from it. I, I am a horror fan, but I don't subscribe to the all horror is worth watching because there there are so many that maybe it doesn't fit in that like thing I just said, but it's more like, oh, well, Blair Witch was interesting. So let's make 500 movies where kids get lost in the woods. And it's like, OK, but like there's nothing. All you did was go in the woods and yell a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Like that, that to me falls back into the category of like, well, you didn't really try. So when you're talking about like an ambitious movie, is it kind of like mostly the story and doing something interesting and different with that? Or is it in the kind of the look and the art style? If it's animation, like something different there? I would say both. I mean, I guess going back to one that we talked about, like Cat Returns is such a weird movie doesn't really have like a linear story but it's so crazy and there are so many interesting details to it that i can watch it over and over even if i'm like i don't know what that movie was about <laughs> <laughs> i i think it's hard to describe to someone but it's so interesting the art style of the cats is so fun it's just so joyous that i love it you meant you mentioned the cat returns and i think ghibli cats is one example for me so I, i'm very allergic to cats i will never be able to have one myself so i have to live vicariously through studio ghibli movies and i think studio ghibli's cats are better than any cat that can exist i think and that's one thing that miyazaki's movies is, is really good at is in those moments those visual moments as you say creating something so perfect and so wonderful and magical but it is at the end of the day cheese on toast or some ramen in a bowl and i wonder if there are any of those moments that come to mind that you'd want to share with us that are like that oh yeah i mean obviously the i'm sure everyone says it but the food is always amazing and i think for me and i know other people as well there's like a, a extra special connection because it's this representation of Asian food that's like so special. Like my friend Greg Pak, who's a writer, went to Japan. He brought me back two food books from the the Ghibli Museum. It, there's something about like that celebration of just this kind of pan East Asian food that's so special when like you grew up with it, but also in a Western country. And both like Greg and I are both biracial, so we both grew up with like white and Asian food in the home. And he and Miyazaki does both of those with such care. And like I, I like every Asian American I know is kind of obsessed with food. <laughs> like it's it's our connection to home. I think a lot of like children of immigrants are mm -hmm. like obsessed with food in that kind of way where it's the most visceral thing that you have that brings you back to like this culture that you're kind of part of, but not really because you grew up in another culture, but at home it's this other thing. You you kept bringing up the egg on toast. And like that's, that's one that like really stuck with me. Like it's just egg on toast, but the way it slides off the bread, like everything about it is so perfect. I was recently talking to someone about trying to make that weird fish bake from Kiki. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> I've done some fish in pastry and have made like little fish shaped like Wellington pouches for <laughs> for my fish bakes, but I haven't done a 
a full pie. And yeah, I just think about it a lot. <laughs> that scene at the start of Spirited Away feels like a lot of my like extended family dinners where there's just more food than there is people. <laughs> and it's just this like insane collection of animals. You don't know what all of them are. They're all kind of spiled together. <laughs> a lot of my extended family lives near each other and we would get together a lot. And that's just what the tables would look like. <laughs> you mentioned Spirited Away there. Of course, it's 20 years since it was released in Japan. That was the first Ghibli film I saw on the big screen. Did you get a chance to see that when it was on theatrical release in the States? Or when did that come on your radar? I did. Um, my My dad got a job as a critic for like a very local paper and so we got to go to a lot of critic screenings wow. which was good because my family is very cheap in that and you know critic screenings actually got to go to the movies for free as opposed to not going to movies <laughs> <laughs> but yeah we saw mononoke in the theater and we saw we saw that and we saw howl i think those are the three that i saw with him as part of like these screenings and the like, ponyo and Wind Rises, I saw my own later when I yeah. could use my own money. <laughs> <laughs> that must be so, so interesting to kind of go from these you know, VHSs you had at home that were just very much part of the woodwork growing up and then being taken to you know, press screenings of these films as they're being released. And Press screenings are not as fancy as you think they are. It's just a bunch of people in a theater. <laughs> I, I suppose what I'm referring to more is more the sense of you're traveling to a place to watch these films on a big screen rather than watching them at home where you're just pulling them out alongside Little Mermaid and Aladdin. It's a bit more of a you know a, a, a ceremony to it because um, it's certainly a big deal for me. Princess Mononoke was a film I saw. It was passed around my school on like a VCD or something that someone had got from Chinatown. And then Spirited Away being out at the cinema was actually you know, a much bigger deal. I, the only one I remember being fancy was actually for the the new dub of Akira where mm. uh, Pioneer like gave everyone popcorn and then you got a card for the new arcade across the street to, that had like money on it. That was when they first started putting like arcade money on cards as opposed to tokens. And that was that was as fancy as they ever got was we were given free things. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the last kind of the big question is because we've watched all of the Ghibli films now for the podcast and we've done a couple of other dips into anime we've kind of watched all of Satoshi Kon's movies we covered the kind of Irish animation studio cartoon saloon kind of looking a bit like where should we go next do you have any recommendations of what what we should dip our toes into next there's so many things you can go to and you've, you've kind of covered some pretty big ones I do like the idea of just following animation studios from other countries that aren't Japan because Japan's animation business industry gets so much attention. There's Sylvain Chimay and all of his work. I feel like that stuff really started coming to focus when I was in film school. And so in my brain, it's kind of filed under things that art students pay attention to. <laughs> but yeah, there's so many there's so many other countries that are doing interesting animation that don't get the same focus that Japan does because Japan has this intense, like kind of brutal industry <laughs> that's pumping out so much. I was invited to an animation festival in Mexico and it was really cool seeing the people in Mexico working on all this stuff that like I didn't realize had as much of an animation industry as it does. Mm. But I also think maybe we're just not 
importing it, and so that's why I don't know what it is. No, that, that's that's a great suggestion. You know, we we haven't actually had many suggestions for the American animators or film studios. I mean, of course, everyone talks about Disney and Pixar. They they get enough love, and also we, we've done twenty four episodes for Ghibli. We're not going to do however many fifty episodes for Disney in, in a hurry. But there's there's a little part of me I've, we've not really cracked how to do TV series yet. But I think there's some you know Bruce Tim. And the DC animated universe of the nineties, you know, some some of that stuff could be really fascinating to cover one day, and um, yeah, it's 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 always a good question to ask people because we get such interesting responses because everyone has their own sort of route through these films. I suppose a question that may be more specific to comic art because this is the thing coming up through comics in the UK. It seems that everyone watched these films of a similar of of, of a certain age, but it, not many people wear that influence on their sleeve. And I suppose, is there anyone that comes to mind if we said, we're going to go, we've just done Ghibli Attack, studying Studio Ghibli, we should go and read a comic series that may have been inspired by these films or drawing from the same creative wells. Is there anyone that comes to mind? Yeah, there are people who have done things that I think have that kind of introspective feel that Ghibli movies often have. And they're they're not going to be the people who are the most uh, part of like the big two companies mm. that everyone thinks of. For comics, I would recommend, especially when it comes to the food stuff, Seconds by Brian Lee O'Malley. I think for that kind of introspection and sadness, I like a lot of what the Tamaki cousins do, Gillian and Mariko Tamaki. Uh, there's Skim, which is kind of a coming-of-age lesbian story. Uh, they also did This One Summer. Three Shadows is one that's just very moody in the way that their movies are. And I think just like on a more poetic side of things, I like Eleanor Davis's comics a lot because she has like, these comics that are almost like poems. They're not so much stories as they are just ideas that kind of drift and flow. They're, they're nice and a little bit sad in the way that I feel like Ghibli's movies are often very nice and a little bit sad. Those are fantastic recommendations. Thank you. Erica, thank you so much for your time. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you and uh, nerding out about Ghibli and everything else. Thanks. Thanks, you guys. Thank you to Erica for joining us and geeking out about Ghibli. Listeners, the strongest recommendation from me uh, to read Erica's work. The Squirrel Girl in particular is fantastic. Dracula, Mother, Beeper, as I said earlier, also definitely worth looking up. Just follow Erica wherever you can. Erica Fails is her handle that she uses on Twitter and Instagram and Patreon as well if you want to join and support her work and see some of the great artwork she's putting out via there too. And if you want to be keeping up with all of us and the show, you can do so on Twitter where we are at Ghibliotech. You can email ghibli at little.studios.com. But we're all individually on Twitter too. Steph's over there at underscore Steph Watts. Michael's there at Michael J Leader. And you can follow Jake on Twitter at Jake H Cunningham. Ghibliotech is a Little Dot Studios production. Our artwork is by Sophie Moe, our music is by Anthony Ying, and James Payne is our editor. The show is produced by Michael Leader, Jake Cunningham, Harold McShill, and Steph Watts.